Welcome to Songs of Praise. We hope you enjoy the Christ-centered songs and that it brings healing to your soul.
shackled by a heavy burden Leave a load of guilt and shame Then the hand of Jesus touched me Skill or name 
Stay tuned to 3ABN Australia Radio for more inspirational music.
Your dreams don't realize. Your plans just don't work right. Oh, there are times you wanna change to get rid of that vice you do. Still, you do it like you. Just planted in Him, we become fruitful.
Shaking, keep your lamps all trimmed and burning, ready for your Lord's returning. Lo, He comes, lo, Jesus comes. Lo, He comes, He comes all glorious. Jesus comes to reign victorious. Lo, He comes, yes, Jesus comes. of your Savior, pardon sin and purchase favor, blood-washed robes and crowns of glory, haste to tell redemption's story, lo, He comes, lo, Jesus comes, lo, He comes, He comes, oh glorious, Jesus comes to reign victorious, lo, He comes, yes, Jesus comes. at 
the bass are crunk, his chariot wheels are rumbling. Tell, oh tell, all the sand and drunk is sounding. Victorious love he comes, yes, Jesus comes. Sinners come while Christ is pleading. Now for you he's interceding. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with equity and govern the nations on earth. Psalm 67, 4.
This is Songs of Praise, a message in music to draw you closer to God.
It's been a pleasure to have your company here on Songs of Praise. 
We here at 3ABN Australia Radio wish you God's richest blessings. Today, in 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading, we're continuing I Saw God's Hand by the late missionary pastor Elwyn Martin. Much of the book is set in Papua New Guinea and is broadcast with the kind permission of Amazing Facts. In our last episode, Elwyn Martin tells us of travelling to his mission station of the Vailala River and uh, there was a great storm and his life was miraculously saved. They were travelling on two barges following a larger ship, the Shanampa. Number two barge suffered the same fate as ours, except that it turned completely over. But the Australian captain and engineer were more alert than my captain and I, for during the two hours of waiting for the top of the tide, they had lashed a dozen empty 44-gallon drums together, When their barge was swamped, the crew, the captain and the engineer made the shore without any real effort, except to cling to the ropes, binding the drums together in a sort of raft. In the darkness, we could see flashlights coming along the coastline, searching for survivors. We were the last three. The Chinampa had seen that our barges were in distress, and realising that there was little they could do with the larger boat, hastened an hour and a half upstream to the APC base to get smaller, shallow-drafted boats, life-saving equipment, etc., and returned to do whatever was possible to save us. We were taken on board the Chinampa and clothed. That night, I was wearing the chief geologist's shoes and the base superintendent's trousers and shirt. The Chinampa's cook had a hot meal waiting for us. Never had I tasted such delicious hot soup. It was the first food we had since the evening before. That night I was given a comfortable bed at the APC base, and I had a good breakfast the next morning. Shortly after breakfast, I asked to talk to the two men who I felt had saved my life, for in my weakened condition I was unable to hold on to the drum, and they had clamped their hands over mine. The privilege was granted me, I thanked them from the depths of my heart, but it was evident I wasn't getting through to them. They didn't understand a word. An interpreter was found, and again through him I thanked them profusely. The two Papuan crewmen, with perplexed expressions, asked through the interpreter why I wasn't speaking to them in their own language. I was quick to explain that just as they could not speak English, I could not speak their language. They replied, No, Master, we can't speak your language, but you can speak ours. From the time we told you to try to get to the drum until we were washed ashore, you spoke to us in our language. The Australian Petroleum Company gave me a guide to show me the way through the jungle track to the Vailala Mission Station. I am greatly indebted to the men of the APC for their kindnesses. As far as I know, my suitcase was never seen again. Chapter 2. Closed Doors Swing Open As we settled into our work at Vailala, Alma and I witnessed even more remarkable evidence of God's hand at work. Later chapters contained these stories. But first I should tell how his intervention for us, 
had extended like a chain of sparkling jewels back to college days in Australia and before. In my early twenties, I had reached a Red Sea experience in my life, for there seemed no way back, no way round, and certainly no way through. God's demands upon me had been made clear through the preaching of evangelist Llewellyn Jones and under the impact of the Spirit's power. I spent a night in anguished prayer, feeling I had to make a decision for eternity. My whole present life was at stake. Toward daylight, I felt prepared to make a full commitment to Christ and to keep His Sabbath. This decision was to alter the whole shape of my life. In a few days, it became apparent that I would lose my job. Already I knew that my decision meant giving up movies and dance halls and card parties and heavy smoking. In addition, my girlfriend refused to follow me in my newfound faith. Now to lose my job, even though it netted a mere $3 a week, seemed to be a crushing blow, for these were depression days. Thousands of men had packed their swags, shouldered their packs, and could be seen walking the roads in a futile search for work. I lost my job on Friday afternoon. However, I moved forward with a slender faith based on just three verses of Scripture. Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Matthew six thirty-one to 33 God's promise waited only hours for fulfillment. On Sunday morning, a former partner in a sawmill venture approached me and suggested that we take over a motor business that had gone on the rocks. His savings and mine, plus a small loan, established us in an automobile repair business. Within a few months, I learned of Australasian Missionary College, now Avondale College, and my now restless spirit longed for training that I might become an ambassador for Christ. But how could that be possible? To sell my share of the business would be an impossibility. How could my partner agree to take someone else? And who would have the money? I prayed, and the more I prayed, the more the impression deepened that I should prepare for the Master's service. In the wee hours of one morning, a bright thought came into my mind. Why not pray that my partner's brother, Lester, would take over my share of the business. I tried hard to dismiss the thought. It seemed an impossibility. Lester was well established in a motor transport business some 600 miles north, and there was not the remotest suggestion that he had any intention of leaving his business. Praying for the will to dismiss the thought of Lester from my mind only made the impression more persistent. At last, in desperation, I cried out, Lord, if you want me to go to college, then send Lester to buy my share of the business. I will take that as confirmation of your calling. Sleep came easily after that. Next morning, a messenger brought a telegram addressed to my partner. Surprise and consternation spread over his face as he read the contents. Then he slowly said, Lester is coming home. 
but he doesn't say why. I dared not tell my partner about my prayer the night before, for he was not the least interested in religion. Lester arrived a few days later, and when I had last seen him several years before, he had been a wonderful specimen of manhood. Now when I asked how he was, he turned away and filled up with tears. I dared not approach the subject. Later I learned that because of his wife's unfaithfulness, his home had broken up. Three or four seemingly endless days passed, but still there was no suggestion from Lester of his plans. At last one night, when I could bear it no longer, I challenged the master whom I had learned to love and trust concerning the reason why he had led thus far and no further. On my knees I urged him to let me know the next day whether or not I should go to college. Ten o'clock the next morning found me on my back under a car when Lester came in. After the usual good morning, he immediately asked whether he could talk to me alone in the office. Breathing a prayer, I entered the office. Lester laid his bank book on the table and said, Have a look at that. That's all I have. Would you consider accepting that amount for your share of the business? Even though it amounted to less than I had paid, this was obviously the Lord's leading. What could I do but accept? While the necessary documents and transfers were prepared, I told Evangelist Jones of my college plans. He kindly but firmly rebuked me. My hopes were doomed, he said, for Australasian Missionary College had turned down a lot of applications. Furthermore, it was too late to think about college that year because the first term was half over. My ardour should have been dampened, but it wasn't. I told him of the Lord's leading in the disposal of the business. His reply was, Who am I that I should stand in God's way? I'll take you over to the college. Maybe I can help you. I know the principle. A few days later we drove the 200 miles to the college. The principal greeted us warmly, but when Elder Jones tried to explain the reason for our visit and that as a personal favour he wanted the principal to accept me, if at all possible, the principal became most emphatic, telling us that it was impossible. He had others waiting to see him and ushered us out of his office, in spite of Elder Jones seeking to explain why I should at least be given a hearing. After some discussion in Elder Jones' car, we decided that he should now approach the principal alone. But he was unable to get beyond the door. We again sought the Lord in prayer, asking why he had led us this far. Was this the end? Again we decided to approach the principal. We waited until there was no one else around and then knocked on the door. The principal answered, What? Not you fellows again. Then addressing my pastor, he said, Lou, let me tell you, I'm already in trouble with the fire authorities. I have too many students for the amount of firefighting equipment and fire escapes. It seems certain at this stage that I will have to reduce the number of students. He then added, as if for final emphasis, I am definitely not accepting another student this year. Then he paused and said, wait a bit. There is one exception, and that comes from higher up than I. I will be accepting one and one only. I have the letter in my file. I only vaguely heard what he said next, for I was beginning to lose interest. Here it is, a lad by the name of Elwyn Martin.
Whether Elder Jones knows who wrote that letter, I do not know. If so, he has never chosen to tell me. To be continued. Tune in again next week for the next episode of I Saw God's Hand, written by Elwyn Martin and read by Alan Lindsay. tip lady and I love giving tips that help simplify life. Are you plagued with unpleasant memories that you just can't seem to forget? Then today I'm going to tell you a cure. Well I'm going to suggest it anyway. Have you ever seen grass trees? Here in Australia I always used to call them by another name but these days we're told we must not use that name we must call them grass trees so that's what I do. If you want the fancy name they're called Xantheria. I think that's how you pronounce it. They're an incredibly artistic part of our fantastic bush heritage. Their beauty is striking. A grass tree looks like it has an amazing long skirt of long leaves that drape stylishly around the centre of the plant. Recently I sat under a grass tree catching my breath after a stiff climb with its skirt draped over my head while I peered out through its long leaves and my own heritage loomed into mind. I was a little girl in New Guinea, born there. We left when I was quite small, but my memories are quite large. As I sat there, I was seeing in my mind's eye the duk-duks, part of my New Guinea heritage. I remember standing in our Land Rover, yes, in those days, no seat belts to hold me in, rounding a bend in the road and Dad screeching to an abrupt halt as there, right in front of us, stood one, not one, but two duk-duks. What on earth were they? They looked for all the world like these grass trees, except that in the centre was a man and not a trunk of a tree. A national man well hidden under the skirt of leaves that draped over his head. No wonder my memory is vivid as these two duk-duks jumped up and down on the road, flapping their arms and making the grass skirt bounce up and down. If I hadn't been in that secure spot in our vehicle with Dad at the wheel, I'd have been terrified. They certainly gave me a lasting memory. And that's one of the things I really make an effort to create these days. Memories. Happy memories. So my first tip is, do something different every week. Something you don't normally do. You're going to create happy memories. And my second tip is, carve out time to do it. It's not going to happen unless we choose to allow it to happen. I've found in life that by reviving happy memories, they fill so much space that the other kind of memories lose their grip on me. And that's a good thing. Many, many years ago, I decided with a young friend that one day in the what seemed to be a long distant future, when our physical strength would wane, we'd sit in rocking chairs and we'd regale each other with memories. Well, that time is coming closer, but at least we're making memories, happy ones. So that's it today from the Two-Tip Lady, who loves to help make life more simple. (laughs) 